Roll tight, everybody, and welcome to Bama Talk. I'm Steve Sample, and we're glad you decided to tune in today because we want to take some time to talk about an Alabama man that always modeled the words to our alma mater in a manner that ought to make us all immensely proud. Faithful, loyal, firm, and true are lyrics that are easy to take lightly sometimes when we sing them at homecoming every year, but it's clear that those lyrics were more than just words to Mal Moore because those ideals were made manifest by his lifelong love for his school and his undying devotion to it. When he stepped down as athletics director at Alabama a few days ago, it ended a career that spanned over 50 years, and it marked the end of an era in athletics that was as successful as any school has ever seen. And at the age of 73, the only thing that could keep him from continuing his Hall of Fame caliber career were health concerns that made it impossible to carry on. His passing Saturday morning stunned us. It hit an awful lot of people awfully hard, and I'm one of them. I'm just barely old enough to remember seeing him as a player during his last two seasons in a crimson jersey, and I was fortunate enough to get to speak with him a time or two in later years. Now, he was a very busy man, but he was warm and welcoming, and even though he was always working hard at the highest levels of his profession, he did it from a posture of compassion and humility. His bio at Alabama will include his being a player, a coach, an administrator, and an athletics director, but the words that best describe him are servant leader. And it all started for the star high school quarterback from Dozier, Alabama, when he decided to come to the capstone as part of Coach Bryant's first recruiting class in 1958. If there were ever any questions about his physical toughness, that issue was settled when he survived the first year of Coach Bryant's tenure in Tuscaloosa because anybody that went through those practices and those off-season workouts will still tell you it made game day seem like a holiday. There was a lot of competition at quarterback on those teams with Pat Trammell and some guy named Joe Namath, so he didn't get many snaps, but what he did get to see was what success looks like and what makes it happen. When his playing days at the Capstone came to a close, he spent a year at Montana State, then he came back to Bama as a graduate assistant in 1964. That team went 10-0 and going into the Orange Bowl, and it was awarded a national championship, which is where he won his first ring as a coach after having earned one in 61 as a player. He coached defensive backs on the 65 Bama squad that won back-to-back titles when they beat Nebraska in a return trip to the Orange Bowl, which meant he had to find more space in his jewelry case for national championship ring number three. By 1971, he was coaching quarterbacks and helping hone the wishbone, and even though it was a triple option attack, three of his quarterbacks, Richard Todd, Jeff Rutledge, and Walter Lewis, all had careers after college in pro football. The 1973 team set school records for scoring while going 11-0 in the regular season, and a number one ranking resulted in ring number four. And speaking of four, that's how many SEC championships Bama had won in a row since 1971 when Mal was made offensive coordinator in 1975. The Tide won four more SEC titles in the next five years, years that included two more national championships in 78 and 79 with near misses on several other occasions. When Coach Bryant retired after the 82 season, Mal spent four years at Notre Dame. Then in 1986, he joined Gene Stallings' staff as an assistant coach with the Cardinals in the NFL. But he came back to Bama again when Coach Stallings took over in Tuscaloosa in 1990, and it would take him only three years to put the Tide back on top. That meant Mal Moore owned seven national championship rings as a tied player and coach, and that was more than anyone else associated with Alabama could ever claim up to that point. 
1994, his wife Charlotte was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, so he left coaching to assume a position as an associate athletics director because it allowed him more time to take care of her, and he spent the next 10 years doing just that. He visited her every day he was in town, and those of us that have lost loved ones to that awful affliction can attest to how hard that is for all concerned. He handled it so well that most of us never knew it was going on until it was over. In Mal Moore's mind, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, until death do us part, wasn't just talk. Mal Moore walked that walk. He was named athletics director in 1999 and immediately went to work raising funds for facilities while the Tide faced some very tough times. When he took over, the department had a $36 million annual budget, and now, in spite of NCAA sanctions, personnel issues, coaching changes, and a sagging economy, Alabama Athletics operates on a budget well over $100 million per year. In 2002, he launched the Crimson Tradition Fund that raised more than $150 million for facility upgrades, which meant almost every facility on campus was upgraded by 2006. And again, all this progress was made in the midst of situations that would have sunk most other programs. The messes he had to manage involving Mike Price and Mike Dubos were devastating, and it made progress painful, but Coach Moore found ways to get through those difficult days. And while the football team struggled at times for a number of reasons. It's worth remembering that Mike Dubose, Dennis Franchione, and Mike Shula all had 10 win seasons and won or shared an SEC title during their tenures with the Tide. You never hear about how easy it would have been for your average athletics director to hit the road looking for a lighter load, but love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love is the more excellent way, and Mal Moore was never one to just walk away. Then, true to form, the tide turned a corner in 2007. Long story short, Mal got on a plane and made his way to Miami. He checked into a hotel, and he's been quoted as saying he was either going to come back with Nick Saban or just not come back at all. Now, he did a terrific job of recruiting Terry Saban, and the next thing you know, Nick's landed at the Tuscaloosa airport where he had to make his way through a mob so he could conduct his introductory press conference, and that's when the nation came to know there was a new sheriff in T-Town. Three national championships later, Mal owns a ring for all ten fingers, and that's just for football. What most don't know is that Alabama, having just won two consecutive titles again, is the only team in the country to win back-to-back national championships four times, and he played a part in three of those. And let's not forget that during his tenure, gymnastics, women's softball, and women's golf have all won national titles too. So while we know there are those out there that think less of Coach Moore than we do, what cannot be denied is his devotion to our school, his loyalty, his work ethic, and his contribution over 50 years to the most successful half century anybody's school has ever seen. And we're glad to say our guest today saw a lot of it up close and personal because he played at Alabama while Mal was coaching and later joined the staff and worked with him during Coach Bryant's last few years. Murray Legg, thanks for taking time to drop by and share some thoughts with us today. Thank you so much. I tell you, anytime I can talk about Mal, I'm very honored to do it. Well, you know, it's a beautiful day. I, I, uh, I know he'd enjoy it. I, I, I hate that we're um, uh, getting to meet and visit under the circumstances, but at the same time, uh, Mal casts such a positive uh, influence and vision over everything that uh, 
I think if he were here, he'd encourage us to just have a good time and enjoy these minutes together. Uh, you know, we've we've all been affected by this loss, even of those of us that didn't have a really close personal relationship with Mal. But you not only knew him, uh, but you went into battle with him. Is it safe to say this hit you pretty hard? It it, it has. I tell you, um, when I was a young coach, Mal kind of took me under his wing, and uh, of course, I played on defense when Mal was a coordinator. Yep. But, uh, I was recruited as a quarterback, so I kind of worked out with Mal that first year and, and uh, got to know him then. But uh, he was just a true gentleman. He was a wonderful coach, very knowledgeable. and uh, But he, he just had a way about him that, that made you feel good just to be around him. You know, you're exactly right. I, I like to say I'm old enough to actually remember him seeing, seeing him in uniform and uh, – he always kind of had that that body language, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me so much of Coach Bryant's passing because they both actually died years before we all thought they would, but they'd been around so long and had such a strong presence, it seemed like they'd always be here. What's it been like to have been so close to men like that that have had such an impact on so many people? You know, I think I think most people out in the public, they, they don't – understand or they tried to understand uh the bond that you that you end up having with with your mentors or your coaches um it's really an amazing journey mal has uh, and and also coach bryant um they were they were great football coaches but they were also great people coaches and uh they 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 taught you a lot of things by not only uh, their knowledge of the game, but they also taught you um, life lessons, and they taught you those things by the way they acted and the way that they carried and handled themselves. You know, growing up in Tuscaloosa, I was a, got my degree at Alabama. I was a huge fan. Uh, remember watching you play all these guys through the years. You are a when I'm telling you, I knew Moses' daddy. Yeah. The it always struck me during Coach Bryant years, uh, Coach Bryant's years, and. Mal played such an important part in that period and, and when you were playing that when we ran out there, regardless of who we were playing or their talent level, where they were from, the record, that we had an advantage. And 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 it was it's hard to put into words, but when those guys ran out to warm up, just that body language, just the attitude, their carriage, I always felt like regardless of all the other circumstances and situations and physical characteristics, we had an advantage. Well, I've told this story to a lot of my friends and people who I have spoken with over the years since I've played. But um, true story is um, every single game that I ever wore that red jersey and uh, ran through the tunnel and was on the field warming up, you never thought you would lose, ever. Losing was not part of your vocabulary and losing never entered into your mind um, because it's not the way you were coached. It's not the way you were taught. You were taught there that you were in Alabama. It's out and, of character. Yeah, it's out of character. And you're at Alabama and nothing but winning a national championship uh, is accepted. Now, it doesn't mean that you were obsessive about everything you did, but I think <laughs> – terminology has changed and phraseology has changed and coach Saban terms it, uh, the process. Now, uh, we had a process as well, but they didn't use that terminology. It was more, you know, simplified that you worked your butt off. You did this, you did that. And if you did these things, 
then you were going to win. But you were also going to win because you were at Alabama. And, and the pride that they instilled in you to wear that red shirt is something that I will never forget and something that I will always cherish. And, and there was a period of time where I felt like in Alabama football and Alabama history, after Coach Bryant passed, they got away from that. They got away from making these players understand and realize just what it means to wear that red jersey of all those people that came before you who took pride in that shirt and who wore it and what it meant to them and how successful that program had become, that it was your legacy to take that and carry on with that. And and I think I think we got away from that. And I think as a result, our record suffered for a few years. But with Coach Stallings coming back and then and then Coach Saban, it it started with Coach Stallings and being restored. And then Coach Saban has come in and said you know what? If if Alabama's going to be back where it needs to be, then then this is how we have to have to do it. But the common theme in that was Mal Moore. He was the one who 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 really implemented that in 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 his own way. The common the, thread. The common thread. That's amazing. You know, there was something in the news here just the last couple of days. The new coach at Arkansas, Brett Belima, I believe is how you pronounce his name, that was at Wisconsin, was at a booster function up there somewhere. And talking about how he came to Arkansas to, to beat Alabama and that his record in the Big Ten was better than Coach Saban's record at Michigan State. Well, from a numerical standpoint, that's obviously true. I mean, numbers don't lie. But it's it's interesting that he would skip over uh, the subtext that's really the bigger point and all that in that, yeah, at Michigan State. And Michigan State's a fine school and a fine program, but it ain't Alabama. <laughs> you know, when you take that, – that's the reason Mel Moore got on a plane and went to Miami and and wasn't coming back until he had a yes or a no. That's right. And, of course, he talked about not coming if, – if he didn't come back with him, <laughs> he might just not come back. But at that point, Mal knew what we needed as well as anybody. And, and even people that doubted – you know, the people that mouth off about, oh, he was this kind of offensive coordinator and that kind of – he knew. He'd been close to the source of success. He, he's, he was at the origin of our modern-day success, which I, I think of in terms of the last 50 and 60 years. Uh, so it, it was – it's so gratifying, and I'm so happy for him that he got to see uh, this unbelievable uh, run of success, these – these last few years, you know, you played in the secondary at Bama, but you were a quarterback, like you were mentioning, uh, in high school over here at Homewood High School, with a lot of other guys on the team that wound up on defense. Of course, we used to sign fifteen or twenty quarterbacks a year, right. and they wound up playing everywhere. Uh, it must have been interesting to watch Mal coordinate the offense. You know, even from just an X and O standpoint, and coach the quarterbacks. What do you remember most about him as a coach in those terms from your years as a player? As a player, um, I wasn't around Mal a lot day in and day out. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you, you were around him when the first offense went against the first defense in some in some ones situational scrimmages, right? But for the most part, the 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 first defense went against the second or third team offense, and vice versa. And and uh, uh, but but the thing that I learned about Mal uh, as I became a coach. I don't think there's anybody besides Ken Donahue would be the only, the only, um, uh, you know, exception to the rule. I've never seen a coach more prepared than Mal. 
Really? Yeah. Mal just had such a grasp of football. And, of course, he was around Coach Bryant. He was around other good good assistant coaches. Sure. And, but, but the thing to me that set Mal apart was, was his understanding of the game. He, he understood blocking schemes. He understood uh, uh, angles, situations. I mean, everything about the offense, Mal understood. And Mount, when he coordinated an offense, he not only said, okay, I think these plays will work against this defense. He worked with the line coaches and everything of, of coming up with the blocking schemes to block certain plays against certain defenses. I mean, I mean, you give Mal a week or two to prepare for a bowl game, and he was phenomenal. And, but he was phenomenal also on a, on a week-in, week-out basis. Um, you know, Mal kind of got overshadowed, you know, sometimes I think because – you know the wishbone offense. It's not sexy. It's just it's just smash mouth. You know, line up, get four or five yards running the ball, and there's nothing exciting about watching that style of play, except watching the W's pile up, and that's something exciting about it. And yeah. and so Mal, I think, was underestimated of how smart he was in terms of in terms of an offensive mind. You know, we, I was mentioned in the opening that in spite of the fact that yeah, he, he spent over a decade. Uh, running a wishbone running attack, we had three quarterbacks that went on to the NFL and had right. good careers. Richard Jod, uh, Jeff Rutledge, Walter Lewis were all mm-hmm. excellent and mm-hmm. managed to make it into some level of pro That's football correct. and mm-hmm. do awfully well. That reflects on coaching because the ability to adapt to a new situation and circumstances, and especially with elite athletes, I agree. I agree. is just uh, what greater mm-hmm. praise could you could you give to a coach? Right. Uh, you know, there are always uh, going to be fans that think they know better than the coaches. I know you're more you're well aware of that. And when Mal was the offensive coordinator, there there was the usual griping and whining when we didn't score 50 points every game. And like you were saying a minute ago, uh, it was mighty exciting to me to watch somebody plunge into the end zone behind Steve Mott and Dwight Stevenson and John Hanna and all That's those right. guys. That's, right. uh, that's pretty exciting to me. Uh, but I, I think it's easy for some folks to forget the offensive coordinator does pretty much what the head coach tells him to do, especially when he's working under uh, extremely strong personalities like Coach Bryant and Coach Stallings or like Coach Saban today if he was on the staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, saw, you saw those relationships up close. Can we assume that Mal was basically doing what he was told to do? Well, I think I think for the most part, yes. Uh, the one thing that 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 we always saw was that um, when when you would have your staff meetings, and, and and it was very interesting to me to go from a player then to a coach, yeah, yeah. and be sitting around the the big conference, the big staff room with coaches that you played for, but now you were one of their peers. The brain or, trust. Yeah, of course, I was always looked as the young coach, which is which is fine with me, but. Um, but but to to see Mal how how he was smart how he when he wanted to get a point across to Coach Bryant the one thing you did not do with Coach Bryant is challenge Coach Bryant in front of anybody and or you know especially his other coaches and some coaches would want to make their point and their voice would raise and they would get up and then they would just get pop slap back down and because Coach Bryant wasn't going to take that from anybody especially his coaches. But um, he wanted to express your opinion and to be strong and 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 how you felt about something and to prove your point. But Mal was was excellent at that. Mal knew what he wanted, but he also knew how to get what he needed from Coach Bryant. And but but Coach Bryant gave him that, but only within 
a certain amount of, of leverage, I mean, of, of, of leeway. And so, so Mal was able to formulate the game plan and, and implement it. But then if Coach Bryant saw something, kind of like the story of the reverse, I mean, if, Co- if, if, if Coach Bryant saw something and focused in on it and he would want that play run, he would make Mal, you know, change what he was doing and do that. And uh, which, you know, of course, that's a head coach's prerogative. Sure. But, but you know, what, what, what I think a lot of people didn't understand about the wishbone offense is you ran plays at a certain formations predicated on down and distance and field position, and you ran plays to set other plays up maybe in you know in the next series or the next series and that's based on what you saw on defense and so a lot of times you know i've heard fans say well god they run the same play over and over and over again and you know it's coming well you might know it's coming that particular moment but it's it's ran for a reason and that's to set something up down the road that you pop for a big play you pop for a touchdown and I think that's what people did not quite understand who were just looking at it from the stands. You know, I remember against Auburn in the 315 game, uh, we were going from north to south. We had the ball. Uh, that was that 81 game. We were in white. They were in blue. You sound like John Forney. Well, we're north to south here. On the- <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, boy, do I miss John uh, Forney. Boy, was he something else? Uh, the end around to Jesse Bendros. Absolutely. Jesse Bendros lined up as a tight end right. on the right exactly. side. They had we had motion to that side I was and it was counting. I remember, and no, nobody clearly. got within five yards mm-hmm. of him. He ran. It was about a thirty-yard run. Right. Looked like he was out to practice. Early. See what you don't realize is how many plays they ran out of the exact formation throughout the game to get to that point that maybe only gained a yard or two. And you lull them to sleep, and, and all of a sudden exactly. they don't notice you got a wide out lined exactly. up as a tight end. Exactly. And who covers him? And that's where Mao was really, really good. Oh, stealth, mm-hmm. <laughs> stealth offense. Mm-hmm. Personnel, you know, I, we were just—I was thinking the other day about, you know, good gracious, the the running backs, Coach Saban is stockpiling now. The talent level is amazing. We're taking guys that were four and five star running backs in high school, and they're working them at cornerback now because we're going to have seven running backs in the fall fighting for that second and third spot. T.J. Yeldon's going to start mm-hmm. if he stays healthy. We're playing more running backs now than we've that we've ever played. We've got more than we've ever had, and especially guys that that have got the talent to get on the field. A lot of folks may not have seen or don't remember that back in those when the wishbone was really clicking, we had sometimes three full sets of backfields. That's, That's three guys, a full mm-hmm. fullback and two tailbacks, and they played. Mm-hmm. There were awful lot of games. We played seven, eight, nine running backs in a game, regardless of what the score was. That's right. When it came to putting those guys in and in and taking them out, was did Mal have a lot to do with that, or did Coach Bryant have a lot to do with that, or how did that work? Well, I have to be honest with you. When it came to substituting, uh, no one on the staff, and I learned this lesson the hard way. I got set up, and I'll tell that story. But no one on the staff substituted but Coach Bryant. Now, what I mean by that is let's say that I'm Mal, and I see one of our – wide outs run a bad route and I want to bring him out of play and explain to him what he did wrong or I see a bad angle from a fullback on his ride up the middle, then then I'm going to bring him out and I'm just going to pull him out and put someone else in. You couldn't do that. You had to go, Coach Brian, I want to put so-and-so in for, and here's the reason why. And he'd probably just look at you and go, fine. Well, my very first game as a coach was in Legion Field. And uh, Lewis Campbell and Ken Dinahu and Bryant Poo and all these guys were up in the press box. That would have been 81? That would have been 80. 80. And 80. And so, um, and so I'm on the sidelines, and our free safety, 
missed a tackle and but took a bad angle. And I'm talking to to Lewis Campbell on the headset. I said, gosh, dang it. I said, so-and-so just missed a tackle. We need to get him out and explain to him. He said, well, put so-and-so in. I think we got to put so-and-so in. Well, they didn't tell me. They didn't tell me that um, I had to go ask Coach Bryant. So, oh, so no. I, said, I said, Jim Bob, get in there for so-and-so. And he runs on the field. And I hear this, who sent him in? And I didn't know what to say. And, and I said, Lewis, I, I said, was I not supposed to send in so-and-so? He goes, you didn't ask Coach Bryant. I went, no. <laughs> oh, man, you in trouble. Well, and Coach Bryant kept saying, who sent him in? Who sent him in? And I wouldn't say anything. And so I grabbed my, my big, long cord because back then headsets weren't yeah. weren't cordless. And I kept trying to get as far away from him as I could. And That cord wasn't near long enough. And next thing I know, it? I hear this voice go, Coach Legs sent him in. And some other coach told him who it was, and I won't divulge who that was. And so long story short, <laughs> I'm walking down, and all of a sudden I hear in my headset, he goes, Murray, don't look now, but he's on his way to you. I said, who? He said, Coach Brian. He said, he's closing. I said, what? He goes, he's five five yards, four yards. Oh, there he is. Get ready. About that time, this big hand, pow, popped on my shoulder. He wheeled me around. He said, who do you think you are substituting? And, and before I could say anything, he goes, I need I ought to fire you. He goes, matter of fact, you are fired. <laughs> and he turns around and walks off. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm fired. First day. That's first, an honor, man. Yeah, and then, I, then you know, everybody was laughing. I could see them all rolling. And like I said, they set me up. And they said, you know, hey, you're you're a full-fledged coach now. You know, you've been fired at least once by Coach Bryant because we all have. So. Oh, man. That, anyway. That's, that's, a, that's a rite of passage. I think it really was back uh, then. But, well, uh, that, but that's interesting because, you know, I suppose that changes from team to team and coaches to coach. But but there was a lot, that was a lot of substituting going on. There was. There uh, was. You know, and, um, and that 80 year was, was an interesting year because we came within basically two plays of a three-peat. If we would have, well. Mississippi State and Notre no, Dame. No, no, no. Listen, hear what you're saying, but go back. We came within two or three plays of having a four-peat. Because we should have won in yeah. 77. Yeah. Okay. Someone still has my ring in South Bend. We should have won that. Well, and, and it's and interesting so, about 77 is that early in the year, Notre Dame played Ole Miss in Jackson, and Ole Miss beat them 20-13. to 13. Mm-hmm. I remember the game and the score. The whole South celebrated. Oh, yeah. 1977. And uh, we went to Nebraska at a road game. and lost 31-24. Uh, we, we had five yeah. interceptions that day. Yes, uh, we their, did. Their defense played a good game. But Nebraska was an awfully good team and a much better team than Ole Miss, and we lost to them on the road. And we go into the bowl game against Ohio State in – as number five, or number three. We were three, they were six. No, tech in, yeah. Notre Dame was five. And we beat Ohio State like a rented mule. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just one of the best games I've ever seen in the Superdome. That was a game where the uh, sideline reporter asked Coach Pratt why he didn't, ha- had it, didn't have his hat on. He says, you don't wear a hat in yeah, the house. My mama told me not to wear a hat <laughs> indoors. That's right. And Notre Dame jumped us. But then in 80, after winning in 78 and 79, uh, basically one play on the goal line against Mississippi State, kind of similar to the play against Texas mm-hmm. A&M this year. One play. We were right there. Uh, and then a 7 to nothing loss in Legion Field against Notre Dame. Uh, so, there, were, yeah, that was a four-year period where we were within a whisker of doing something mm-hmm. maybe nobody ever will. That's right. Uh, you know, the uh, – oh, 
you know, we got Murray Leg in here. We got to talk about the goal line stand. We, we can't. I cannot have you in here and not talk about that for just a second. You know, everybody knows about, you know, Barry Krause, who's a great guy. I've got to meet him a few times. And Byron Braggs and Marty Lines and Wingo and EJ being in on that play. But if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you get one last lick in on Mike Gooman on that on that final fourth <laughs> well, down play? Well, look, I mean the the whole the whole four downs was a, was a team effort. Oh, that and, whole series. And you know, Don McNeil probably made the play of the game on second down on second down. And uh, the just, series started at the eight yard line. Just to go on record, so everyone out there will know that was my man that Don McNeil made the tackle on at the one. Do you send okay. him a Christmas card every uh, year? Well, no, I, I hugged him a lot after that <laughs> game. I did, but and you know, talking about a wonderful <laughs> he human deliver being his children and a wonderful person. That's Don McNeil. And what and, a play! He came from four or five yards deep in the end zone. He the did. guy caught the ball at the two yard line and. Uh, you know, there's a story behind that, but now is not the forum to tell it. But um, <laughs> it's a, but it's and, a family then, show. Well, but then I'm listen. Uh, you know, everybody did their job. Uh, the line penetrated; they did their job. The uh, offside linebacker did his job to take the 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 block on on third and fourth down. The other linebacker stepped up, made the play, and you know, any help that I gave, I don't know if it would if it made a big deal or not. But you know, I guess I happened to see the. You know, see the camera got in on the picture, so I don't know. But uh, all I know is that it was a uh, it was an incredible experience. It's something I'll never forget, and um, and 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 I think about it all the time. I was there, and I'll never forget it. You know, legend has it that as they walked up the line of scrimmage, they being Penn State on that last play, Marty Lyons yells out at Chuck Fusina, "You better pass!" And it was so loud that day in there. I was there. You know, I don't know if, if he'd have heard it, even if he said it. But what actually happened in that scenario, or or could you hear? Well, no, oh yeah, no, yeah. Um, what it was was that uh, after the third down play, Chuck came up and he was looking to see just how close it was because they had called a timeout. Yeah, and and so he walks up to where the 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 ball was spotted, and Marty was standing there, and he had known Chuck because Marty had um, he was the first team All American, so was Chuck Fusina. And they had gone to some of these, you know, back then they did different things where you went to the Bob Hope yeah, deal yeah. or things like that. So he had met Chuck. Uh, and um, so he kind of had a report with Chuck. And, and Chuck walks and he's looking and he's got his hands on his hips and he looks at Marty and kind of with this puzzled look. Marty goes, you better pass because you're not going to run it in. And so, so that legend is true. Marty did say that. And the rest is history. Mm-hmm. You know, it must have been awfully hard for – for Mal to step down, even though his health wouldn't allow him to carry on. It must have been hard to hand in that helmet in 1962 when his playing days were done. And we know when he never had a chance to become Bama's head coach, he was disappointed. But he never wavered. He never once gave any indication that his love for his school was diminished by any of those disappointments. And it, and if he were here, I think uh, he'd know how you feel when you are turned in your uniform the last time. I always like to ask players this question but what's it feel like especially when you you want a national championship in your last game what's it like to sit in that locker room and know that when you take that uniform off that's the last time well you know as a um as a 21 year old who has a big ego who was on a team that just won a national championship you're not sure at that time that this was the last time you're ever going to put you know put the togs on as coach bryant used to call them you're not sure, but in the back of your mind, it could be. But you knew that there were other players who were going to go 
because just of their pure ability, they were just incredible. Like your your Marty Lines, your Barry Krause, EJ, yeah, Rich Wingos, the guys who just had incredible ability. Um, but the beauty of Coach Bryant and the beauty of of Alabama football, from how it taught me, was if I really want to step back intellectually and look at it, I wasn't as good an athlete as they were. But at the time, you could not have convinced me that I wouldn't. And the reason is because of the way the coaches coached you and what they made you believe. And you brought up earlier about running out on that field and about did you ever think you were going to lose and did you have that slight edge? Did you have the advantage? You had it because it, it on a Saturday in Tuscaloosa or wherever you played as an Alabama player wearing that red shirt, you were the best. You thought you were the best. You were told you, you were, were the special. Best. You were special. You were told you were the best. And if you went out there and gave it a hundred percent and didn't let that guy beat you and you did your job, you were gonna win. And you were gonna make everybody who wore that red shirt proud. And that's what Mao stood for. That's what Mao carried with him through his coaching, through his administration is his pride and that love in that red shirt. And because he got it, he bought into it years ago. And it didn't matter if he got passed over for the head coaching job. It didn't matter if if the way uh, he was treated when the coaching change happened with Coach right. Bryant to Ray Perkins. You know that he had a lot of reasons to be bitter. But his love for this university and his love for that red shirt outweighed his bitterness and his, and his anger. And we could all learn a lesson from that because Mal Moore taught people lessons that they didn't even realize they were being taught by just observing how he lived his life. And to me, that's the legacy that Mal lived. He leaves. walked a wonderful walk. He he did. And I'm going to tell you something. His, his, what he showed people with how he took care of his wife, Charlotte, when she was mm. ill for all mm. these years, and the, and the dedication and the loyalty that he showed. And, you know, I've heard this before, but, you know, you know, someone says, Mal, why do you go over there and see her every day when she doesn't know who you are? He goes, because I know who she is. And that told you what his character was. I mean, he, he, he was going to do the little things, and those are the little things that he learned from Coach Bryant. But he also had it inside. And a lot but, of that's upbringing. But it is. But, but, but those are the lessons that players like myself and everyone else was exposed to if you took the time to understand what you were being taught. And so that, that is the beauty of what is now the legacy of Alabama football and what it is about. And Coach Saban sees, sees that, and he has seized on that. And that's what he's instilling now on these players. Yeah, when he talks about players buying in now. Exactly. But the beauty of it is that's been going on here for 120 years. And, and I know people who are going to hear this are going to say, yeah, right. But I, I'm going to tell you something. It's what sets Alabama football apart. And the other really cool thing about it is the Alabama family, and I include fans and everybody. Sure. But the true fans – they get it too, and they buy into it. And that's why they feel like they have a right to comment or you know, sometimes maybe they're a little more um, vocal in how they sure. voice their opinions on call-in radio shows but, because in their mind – It's important. They're Alabama, 
and yeah. and and it's it's a cut above. It's a cut above. We know there's going to be a memorial service at Coleman Coliseum Thursday, uh, April 4th at 3 p.m., and it is open to the public for all those that may want to go. I don't know about uh, any other arrangements, but I suspect an awful lot of people uh, will want to pay their respects. I do say, because you're a part of what he was a part of, I want to thank you uh, for all you've done over the years, because there's no way you can separate what you've done from what he's done. Well, I, that, that, that's a stretch, but, but no, I can just tell you that, um, I think history will show when people look back of, of the tradition of Alabama football, there are a lot of people who played a part in that tradition. There are a lot of, um, from players to coaches, to administrators, to managers, to trainers, to, just there's a I mean to ticket takers there's a lot of people who who contributed to the success of what is Alabama football and the Alabama tradition but when all the smoke clears there's only going to be a few names that are going to be mentioned at the very elite and the very top and Mao certainly on that list Murray, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege and an honor to have you with us well, today. Thank you. I, I just that. couldn't have enjoyed it more and um, really appreciate all the things you've um, decided to share with us. Will you come back and visit with us again I'd sometime? I'd love to. Anytime. This has been a blast. Super. And, well, and, and I just hope I can get someone to play me some music for it later. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll be talking to you again okay. soon in Roll Tide. Thank you. Roll Tide to you too. Bye-bye. We want to remind everybody that the A-Day game is Saturday, April 20th, and we hope you're planning to attend because, once again, it'll be on ESPN. And we want to make sure that national TV audience sees our national champions take the field in front of a full house. Like we've said before, our players and coaches work awfully hard, and after winning back-to-back national championships, they deserve to see Bryant-Denny busting at the seams. One new feature that ought to be a lot of fun for a lot of folks is that the Million Dollar Band is inviting perspective members and band alumni to join them and play at the 8A game. The band's asking that prospective and current members fill out the online participation form, and alumni will need to sign up through the Million Dollar Band Alumni Association site. So pass the word if you know anybody that might want to get in on this. The softball team took the Tigers to the woodshed when they won a three-game series over Auburn that included a 13-1 mercy rule win and an 8-0 shutout that gave Patrick Murphy his 800th victory as head softball coach at Alabama. Auburn won one of the three games to end a string of 18 consecutive losses to the Tide, and it was the first time they'd won in Tuscaloosa since 2005. But the combined scores of the three games over the weekend had the Tide on top 25-8, and Alabama now leads the all-time series with the Tigers 42-14. They followed that up by taking a series at Texas A&M, too, and we hope to see you at the next home series against Missouri starting Friday, April 5th. So congratulations to Coach Murphy, and we're planning on watching the Tide on must-see TV. TV from OKC again this June. If you've seen pictures on our Facebook page of soldiers wearing t-shirts that say, can I get a roll tide? That's the work of a great group of folks at TideForTroops.com. Tide for Troops is a nonprofit company that provides Bama fan t-shirts to our military personnel. They provide these t-shirts at no cost, which means they depend on donations and sponsors. So if you'd like to help, check it out at TideForTroops.com. 
And speaking of our Bama Talk Facebook page, we were able to reach over 127,000 people with it this last week. So we are truly talking Crimson Tide worldwide. We're having a lot of fun with Bama fans from all over the world, and we want to be a connecting point for Crimson Tide fans from all 50 states and all five continents. Feel free to share any of the posts and pics you see. And if you enjoy the page, hit that like button and let us know. The Bama Talk Facebook page is designed to support and promote Bama Talk Show. So let your friends know they can find the show in the podcast section of iTunes or on Stitcher, which is standard equipment now on a lot of new cars, or at our online home at bigbrainsmedia.com. And don't forget to mention that there's not only no charge for the downloads and subscriptions, but there's also a free podcast app available for your smartphone or tablet that lets you listen to the show on the go. If tweets are the ticket, we post Bama Talk Show updates on Twitter now, too. Well, it's about time to head for the locker room, and we usually end each episode with a bang, but this has been a special set of circumstances this week because we lost a very special person. So we thought it might feel right to close this one with the Million Dollar Band singing the alma mater.